The second part of 2019 is underway and with it, the MotoGP edition of the Paddock Pass podcast is back. My name is Neil Morrison, bringing you all the roundup and the coverage and the fallout from the Czech Grand Prix at Brno. And we have a packed show for you today. Is Mark Marquez making the 2019 season something of a procession and limiting interest? What has happened to Yamaha after such a strong end to the first part of the year? They were back in the doldrums once more. And what's going on in Moto2? Alex Marquez seems to be on the verge of possibly moving away from the team with whom he may win this year's championship. All of that and more in the episode coming up today. Now, glad to say that I'm not alone. I'm joined by my esteemed colleague, the doyen of the MotoGP press room, Mr. David Emmett of motomatters.com. How are you doing today, David? I'm not so bad, but if I'm the doyen of the MotoGP press room, then the MotoGP press room is in deep, deep trouble. We all knew that, though, let's be honest. Uh, your impressions of the Czech Grand Prix, I mean, it was not uh, a spellbinding race. We were maybe expecting um, a closer competition, a closer fight for the win. We had four riders fighting at the front for the first half of the race, but then once we hit around lap 10, lap 11, Mark Marquez just uh, put the foot down and uh, off he went. Yeah, I mean, basically, the first, ten, as you say, the first 10, 11 laps, we thought it might get exciting. There was four riders within, what, within about a second. Um, Dovicioso, Andre Dovicioso was uh, three, four, five tenths behind Mark um, Marcus all the way. It looked like he was sort of stalking him. Uh, but he wasn't stalking him. We found out afterwards, um, uh, Andrea Dovicioso basically said, uh, I was on the limit following him and just hoping to get to the last corner with him. Uh, whereas uh, Marquez was just um, sitting, pushing, waiting to see. And then at some point he pushed a little bit harder, um, opened the gap up to eight tenths and then a second and a second and a half and two seconds and it was all over. Yeah, no one really had a chance to get a look in again. I mean, the sort of numbers that Marquez is racking up really are quite something. 50th pole position on Saturday. That equaled Mick Doohan's tally for poles, a record tally of poles in the Premier Class. Uh, that was his 15th, 50th win in MotoGP from 118 races of 40%, 42%. 42%, yeah. yeah I, I sat rate. down and did the, uh, 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 made a little spreadsheet with all the numbers in, and the numbers are fairly ridiculous. And also looking at the laps led this year, that is fairly ridiculous as well. Marquez has led 162 laps, the next highest rider is Andrea Dovizioso with 23. He's not just winning, he's winning from the front and dominating. Are we entering into another Dune-esque era? Uh, yeah, I mean, to be perfectly frank, Mark Marquez is the, he's a cross between um, Mick Dune and Casey Stoner. He has Casey Stoner's outrageous talent and Mick Dune's uh, desire to dominate. Um, he likes winning, he likes winning a lot. Um, and uh, he will do almost anything he can to, to win. I mean, and I mean, in terms of the champ, the, the championship is over because when Mark Marquez doesn't doesn't win, he comes second. Uh, and even if he came second for the rest of the day for the championship, that would still um, um, that would still leave Andrea Dovicioso. What is he? Fifty eight? Oh, no, sixty three points. So it'd still leave him a whole bunch of sh a point short uh, short of winning. Um, uh, you're nearly twenty points short uh, short of winning. So there's you know the, the championship is over, um, and Mark Marcus likes winning too much. 
That is the problem. He found a new way. He explained uh, in the uh, in the press conference that this year, with the extra horsepower, with the change, he can push from the front. He doesn't have to sit behind uh, Dovizioso and bide his time to the end and try a last lap uh, a last lap pass, which is what made last year so exciting. This year, he can uh, get to the front, stay in front, and push. And in fact, we uh, we saw this, I think, very early in um, uh, in the season, maybe even the first race at the Qatar where where uh, uh, Marcus tried to uh, tried to get away but couldn't um his his new tactic is is to push from push from the start yeah. Argentina the same so yeah that it's not good for the championship but it's fantastic for Mark Marquez and uh if you're a, if you're a Mark Marquez fan and like seeing him winning yeah i think from the six races that he's won this year only three laps of those races have been led by another competitor um and he has just basically adopted his new teammate Jorge Lorenzo's age-old tactics of leading from the front and uh, not looking back. I thought what was quite um, quite ominous for the opposition was uh, Davizioso explaining the difference from lap 10 onwards. He said that Marquez just started breaking a little bit later. And for someone like, David, like Davizioso, yeah. on a Ducati, one of their great strengths is braking stability. One of his great strengths is braking. And he didn't have any answer for that whatsoever. Um, Marquez was just able to inch out half a tenth each sector and that contributed to two or three tenths a lap and uh, well he just made it look quite easy you put the question to Marquez after the race whether this is uh, making the spectacle a little boring because uh, I guess you could say aside from Assen racing hasn't been fantastic uh, from around Mugello onwards you asked if it was making you asked Marquez if uh, his recent feats have been uh, making MotoGP boring let's hear what the reigning world champion had to say uh, Mark, yesterday you equaled Mick Doohan's record for 54 poles. Um, today you became the, 50, the you, you became the fourth rider, I think, to have 50 Premier Class wins. Um, you are becoming a lot like Mick Doohan in that you have no mercy on your opponents. You seem to win everything. Do you worry that you're making MotoGP predictable because we know you're going to win or, or you're going to win most races? No, I think it's not. Uh, MotoGP is not predictable, but uh, but of course, it uh, looks like the, the the way that I'm racing this year, uh, I feel stronger than last year, and uh, looks like I can country in a better way. But of course, it's some races that uh, that yeah, then uh, are more difficult. But like Dobby say, last year uh, in the races that I was able to attack, I attacked from the beginning until the end. And the races that I was uh, suffering a little bit, then I was behind Dobby all the race. And uh, Dobby always used the strategy to manage the tires and push in the end. For that reason, was this kind of races of big group. But, uh, but this year I feel strong. I push from the beginning until the end. And yeah, we will have time uh, if we are lucky to use another strategy. But, uh, but at the moment, if I feel strong, I will keep uh, my, my way. And, and yeah, like you say, uh, it's nice because the numbers are increasing. Uh, we are uh, between some big names of this sport, uh, big legends. And uh, this is something that uh, big respect, but uh, keep going with the same ambition and, uh, and enjoying on the, on the track is the most important. So Mark Marquez there saying that, uh, well, doesn't really care as long as he has a, a sixth Premier Class world title uh, to his name at the end of it all. Um, no. We can go through this podcast about the Czech Grand Prix and not talk about what he did in qualifying because for me that was one of the highlights of the season. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, the thing is, he had 
conditions were tricky. Track was drying. There were, well, I think, five, six or seven riders who actually went out on slicks in the end. But the trick to going out on slicks uh, in the wet is you have to push hard. Um, Michelin's Piero Taramasso explained quite nicely how... Uh, how you can manage to use slick slicks on a drying track but it does basically mean you have to go out and push really really hard especially uh, exiting pit lane which is soaking wet at 60 kilometers an hour you're losing so much temperature from the tire that means you've got to go into the first corner um you know turn one two three go out and push as hard as you can brake really late brake really hard to get some heat into the tires and uh, then uh, and then you can push and mark marcus went out and he did one lap which was good enough for pole uh, and then he went out and did another absolutely outrageous lap um taking pole by 2.4 seconds i forget but i think it was 2.5 yeah yeah as far as i can work out the biggest pole margin in four stroke motor gp era going back to 2002 so that was exceptional enough as it was yeah and, and jack miller tried to match it um got within a second and fell off yeah yeah and now it was uh, it really was something quite spectacular and if you haven't seen it i really would urge you to go back and watch the final five minutes of qualifying not only is he so precise through parts of the track where the dry line is literally the width of a motorcycle he does not veer from that at all but once he gets up the hill and then negotiates turn 13, 14, the final S-bend at Brno, it is teeming at Dynamo 3 in. Yeah. And the track on the second lap especially is completely soaked, completely. And watching him, watching his body shape, watching the angle of the bike, it's as though he's riding in completely dry conditions. He's doing that with slick tires. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it was absolutely outrageous. It was, it was breathtaking. And it, yeah. it basically... The entire MotoGP field just had to say chapeau. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The um, um, I think everyone was in awe except for uh, senior Honda management, who were less than uh, uh, less than enamoured of what he'd been doing, because it was. I mean, it was breathtaking to watch, but it was ridiculously risky thing to do, and there was absolutely no reason to do it. Um, it's the first of a back-to-back -back race. If he crashes and hurt him, hurts himself gets himself out he potentially loses you know 50 points and two strong circuits for Ducati yeah two strong circuits for, for, for Ducati uh, basically he could have completely reopened the championship again but um uh, there's the the story of the of the scorpion of the uh, uh, the the scorpion and the frog, which I would encourage you to Google. Too long for me to explain here, but the, as the scorpion says, it's my nature. I can't help it. He can't help it. He has to go faster. And uh, he went faster. He got shouted at by uh, Emilio Alsamora and uh, a couple of other people. Uh, Alberto Pooch was less than uh, less than uh, amused. But he got a smile from. Pooch. Oh, he got a massive smile from Pooch when uh, after he crossed the line. And that was I almost think... as impressive as the pull lap. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Alberto Pooch showing actual emotion. That was uh, quite uh, well, uh, an emotion other than mild irritation at the existence of other humans. Especially but, uh, journalists. Yeah, especially journalists. Yeah. Yeah, a common reaction. I don't know. Don't quite understand why. But it, it, yeah, I mean, it was it was it was absolutely absolutely astonishing. Yeah, yeah, it was uh, up there. I mean, Marquez has had some outrageous pole efforts in his lifetime. Thinking back to Austin 2015 when his bike broke down and he run back, but I, I would put that right up there with uh, with his very best and most jaw dropping feats that he's done on a on a motorcycle. Um, we're going to, we're recording this on the Tuesday after the Czech Grand Prix. We're still in Brno. We're driving down to Austria tomorrow for the Austrian Grand Prix, which is coming up this weekend. That has been a Ducati track 
the past three years when we visited there since 2016. Ducati have won three times yep. with uh, Iannone, Dovizioso and Lorenzo. I think it might be the only MotoGP track which, it, it is. at the, which Marquez hasn't won. Yep, it's the only track at which he hasn't won. He's won at every other, uh, at every other, other racetrack. And he came close in 2017 and he came close in 2018. And is he going to do it in 2019? Of course he is. Uh, the, I mean, the thing that he came, that he was short of in 2017 and 18 was acceleration and horsepower. And what does the uh, 2019 RC213V do? It um, accelerates and it's fast. So I think there's no question. I think we're, it's more likely we'll see Dovi trying to dive up the inside of uh, Mark than uh, Mark trying to dive up the inside of Dovi. And if it's a last corner battle where... Marquez is leading, then you know the contest is over before it's uh, before it even starts. So I cannot see Mark Marquez being beaten at the Red Bull Ring. Okay, the only hope for the spectacle, I guess, is we said the same thing before the Grand Prix of the Americas back in April. So yeah, and what happened there? Yeah, yes, exactly. Um, uh, but the problem is that uh, in Austin. They had a, that was the start of the season. They had a very specific problem with engine braking. Uh, they found a solution to engine braking. Um, the, the, the bike is now much more controllable uh, on braking into the corner, or it's controllable enough for Mark to actually manage it. And so he has, he has a bike he can work with. I still don't think it's very, it, it, it's a fantastic bike. It's powerful. Uh, and it'll get through corners, um, but there's a bunch of stuff which it doesn't do, but then... He can make up for that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. He can do that. That's the Casey Stoner part of him. Uh, it doesn't make any uh, It doesn't make any difference. Yeah, the 65 degrees of lean angle. Yeah. He can, he can negate those turning issues that they're having, a lack of front-end feel just with his own Yeah, exactly. Genius. I mean, he can crash his... You know, he can, he can basically crash through a corner and not fall off and then come out the other side and be perfectly fine. Exactly like Stoner did, uh, Stoner did in his day. Yeah, yeah. Looking at looking at the crash stats as well from this year, after 10 races, Marquez has crashed just six times. This is a man that crashed 27 times in 17, yeah. 23 times last year. So at this rate, he's on course to crash maybe even less than half the amount that he did in uh, two of the previous seasons. Yeah, but I wrote an article last year about, or at the beginning of this year because I went back and watched every single one of his crashes, of his race crashes last, or well, every single of his crashes during um, uh, official events. And uh, if you look at his crashes last year, um, uh, all of them were during practice. Um, there was, I think, one during, there was one crash during the race last yeah, Magello. year. Yeah, Magello. And that's basically it. If you go back, even if you go back Valencia. further... Yeah, and Valencia as well. Yeah, so two yeah two two race crashes, but by, by by Valencia it didn't matter, and it was bizarre circumstances. But if you go back and look at his uh, crash stats in races, he crashes one or once or twice a year in the race. Andrea Dovizioso, go back and look at him; he crashes once or twice a year during the race. And Andrea Dovizioso is one of the riders who crashes least um, in the paddock. So I think if you sure. He crashes a lot, but he crashes. He crashes when he when he can afford to crash, and he can manage that kind of uh, thing. I have a question for you, Neil. Um, how many more races does Mark Marquez win this season? Uh, so we've got what nine races remaining. We've got nine races remaining. Yeah, I think he's going to make it really silly. Uh, I'd say he's going to win seven more races. I could, yeah, well, yeah. I would say I would say six. I would say he's going to win at uh, he's going to win at the Red Bull Ring. 
Not sure about Silverstone. Uh, not sure about Misano. He's going to win in Aragon. He's going to win in Thailand. He's going to win in Mategi. Philip Island. Yeah, he's going to win in Philip Island. Sepang, I'm not sure about. Valencia, not sure about. But, I mean, you know, it's going to be between five and eight more races that he's going to, that, that he's going to win. So it's going to be a little bit embarrassing. Yeah, so Mark, if you're listening to this, just lay off just a little bit. You know, <laughs> give the others a bit of a chance. Just... Before we tie up uh, the first part of the show on Marquez, uh, he was coming in for a bit of criticism on Saturday, not for his daring feats when he secured pole position, but for what happened just before that, what almost seemed to fire him up a little bit, that incident with Alex Rins. Now, Rins came out and said that, uh, well, he has no respect for other riders. Uh, a few other riders were asked about this, and they came in with their own viewpoints, Andrea De Vizioso, Valentina Rossi were quite interesting as well. Um, is this just this is this is kind of mental games that he's playing with his opposition, right? First of all, I think there's genuine there is genuine beef between Rince and uh, Rince and Marquez, which uh, dates back to the time that Alex was um, uh, uh, Rince's uh, uh, Alex Marquez was Alex Rince's teammate um, in a team run by Emilio Alzamora, and which everything was done to ensure that Alex Marquez became world champion and not Alex Rince. Um, so I think there's some old sort of beef there. Also, Alex Rins is a rider who's come into Mark Marquez uh, or who's come into the MotoGP Championship after Mark Marquez in Mark Marquez's steps and so his uh, footsteps and so his um, uh, his ob- his objective, what people expect of him is to beat Mark Marquez. So Mark Marquez is the target and so that also generates resentment and rivalry. Um, and so I think there was a little bit of, I think there's genuine sort of antipathy between the two, which is good. Um, I think there is, um, I think maybe Rince liked criticising. Uh, maybe he thought he could get into Marcus's head, but all it does is, unfortunately, uh, the other thing that Mark Marcus combines is... Um, Valentino Rossi's mental fortitude his mental strength Mick Doohan's mental strength the same sort of thing just to mess with other people's heads and and never ever ever to be intimidated by uh, by other riders so yeah I, I'm not sure that that um, that can really work yeah take them on at your peril okay so a wonderful day for Honda for Marquez um, in Brno maybe not so much a fine day at the office for Yamaha. In the past, this was always uh, something of a Yamaha track. It's layout, being fast, flowing. Um, but uh, it really was a, a difficult afternoon at the office for, uh, well, Maverick Vinales in particular. Fabio Quartararo never really quite showed the speed that we had seen just before uh, the summer break. Valentino Rossi, I guess, had a, a decent race by his recent standards. Um, but uh, what really went wrong for the Yamaha guys? Uh, one word grip um, because Maverick Vinales if you look at the if you look at the timesheets uh, on uh, Friday uh, Friday evening Maverick Vinales looked really really strong it looked like being a, a straight race between uh, Marquez Dovicioso Rince and, uh, and, and Vinales even in the wet on um, uh, on Saturday because the, the the Bruno track doesn't have a lot of grip in the dry it has a lot of grip in the wet, and so the Yamahas were decent enough uh, 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 on Saturday. But then on 
Sunday, or the, the heavy rain that we had on Saturday washed all the rubber off the, off the track, and then we had the insane race shower, uh, race shower, rain shower, um, just before the uh, just before the race started, and that caused sort of in you know, a panic and for the, the the race to be delayed by forty minutes, and um, it left the track still a little bit sketchy and very green, no grip, and when there's no grip, the Yamahas um, can't. When there's no grip, the Yamahas can't use their corner speeds to make up for the the, the uh, you know the speed that they're losing in a straight line and especially up the hill there. Yeah, exactly. Um, their top speed disadvantage this year is certainly more pronounced than in previous ones. Um, acceleration and traction, uh, when there is a lack of grip as well, also an issue. So it was basically just the worst case scenario for those guys, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, what's what's interesting? I think they uh, last year they complained a lot about a lack of acceleration. They're complaining less about a lack of ex- uh, acceleration this year. There still is a bit of a lack of acceleration. Um, they've cured the tire woes. The, the, the they can manage. They, they've still got tire left at the end of the race. But I, I think it's come at the expense of top speed, um, because if you look at the uh, uh, look at the top speed differential, especially at a place like Brno, uh, they four Yamahas were almost always at the bottom, and they were you know seven, eight, nine k's an hour slower than than the others, and that's just uh, uh, it, yeah. It's giving away too much, and when the grip goes away, they can't use the corner speed. They can't carry the, the you know, use the corner speed and the agility of the bike to, uh, to make up for the, the the ground that they were losing. Yeah, how do you assess Ross's performance? Is that a strong ride? He was saying at the end of uh, of the race that we can't be happy with sixth place, but look where we were the past couple of races. Yeah. And- he was the strongest of the MIs. Exactly. It also seems that uh, uh, the um, Valentino Rossi and Maverick Vinales are two ends of the uh, of the of the scales, and so when one is up, the other one is down. It's a bit of a seesaw, which is exactly what you do not want as a uh, as a manufacturer. Um, I mean, it was a good, it was a strong ride by Rossi for sure. Um, sixth place is not good enough, but it was still he was clearly the best of the Yamahas. Um, uh, much better than his uh, much better than his teammate. Also, I mean, like Maverick Vinales lost almost everything in the first uh, in the first. Well, the run to turn one. Yeah, the yeah the run into turn one, and certainly the uh, the sort of the second half, which was where the where the where the grip was worst, and when the um, uh, uh, where the track was worst, where the um, where there was the least amount of grip, and where he was just. You know, he just didn't get any drive off of there. And there were mitigating factors we should add for Vinales' lousy start. He has a history of poor starts in his time in MotoGP, but he was starting from the inside of the grid from ninth place. Yeah, except the right side of the track was really was really soaking wet, and the left side of the track was much much dry. I actually went back and watched it a few times on the helicopter shop and made uh, from the helicopter shot and uh, made a little list of who was starting on the on the left and on the right. And basically, if you're starting on the left. Um, and it, again, it depended on whether you were on an odd number of the the, the, the grid, so first, third, or uh, if you're on the first, third, or fifth row, as opposed to the second, fourth, or sixth row, because the six, the the, the even number uh, of the grid was further is over to the right, and the odd numbers are over to the left because of the run into the uh, uh, into the first corner. And so, yeah, it really the grid position made a lot of difference just because of this. Yeah, Zarco had a shocking start as well, and he was uh, obviously starting on th- in third. Uh, Vinales just went back; I think he was fifteenth at the end of lap one, and then we thought, well, you know, give him some time, and he'll start to make p- uh, positions up, but never got going never 
Gargoyne at all. And I think he said he was spent around nine laps behind Pekka Banyaya, couldn't get past Johan Zarko. Zarko's pace was pretty woeful all weekend. Yeah. Um, is this a return to square one? Are we back to where we were at the start of this year? I don't think so. I think it was, uh, I think we're in sort of special circumstances, but this is something which is going to make a huge difference. Uh, I mean, like grip. Basically, the Yamaha's results are directly proportional to the amount of grip of uh, grip available. The more grip there is, uh, and especially Maverick Vinales, uh, if there's grip, you know, he'll be at the front. If there's no grip, he'll be at the back. And it's as uh, it, it's as simple as that. There'll be there'll be a direct uh, a direct relationship, uh, certainly until Yamaha have fixed their bike. Yes, yes, and uh, fixed their bike to their credit. They are trying to do. There was a new bike for both Vinales and Rossi uh, at the test yesterday on Monday. Um, no, I just sometimes, sometimes I think that Vinales has got it figured out, and we're starting to see the guy that we were all lauding. I think rightly lauding in 2016, in that second season Suzuki, as a genuine world championship threat for years to come. We know he has the talent, and before the summer break, everything started to look as though. Yeah, he's making this work. He had some great results, some fantastic potential. Put it all together at Assen, rode a really intelligent cam race at the Saxon Ring. And then he has this race here, and not only this race, but afterwards he's asked about the Monday test, and he's got this 2020 bike there to try. And he says, I'm not interested. Uh, you know, I just want to focus on Austria. Getting back on track next weekend is my ultimate priority. We're going to work on braking and acceleration. Now, sure, fair enough. Maverick, you're completely out of the championship fight. 2019, as far as the championship is concerned, is over. And surely you should be thinking long-term and what 2020 might hold. You haven't had this opportunity before to try Yamaha's bike for the next year in August. What's he doing? Uh, I mean, Maverick Vinales is still too much the eager teenager. Um, uh, he's still thinking about, you know, tomorrow. And not thinking about um, uh, he, he because he doesn't have a title because he doesn't have a championship yet um, he hasn't been able to think about the future he's so focused on uh, winning now um, and that's not the way that you win championship this is what Mark Marcus learned in 2015 you can try and win every race but if you keep falling off you're not going to win a championship and um, Maverick Vinales needs to learn that uh, the way that you win a championship is you start working the year before uh, to improve the bike to get there to, uh, to get it ready to his credit he did do 10 laps on the uh, on the bike on uh, on the Monday at uh, the Monday test um, both him and Valentino were not overly uh, I mean, they were they were really pleased that Yamaha were making the effort that the Yamaha bought something. The bike was a little bit better, uh, but it was um, uh, it was a small change and not a uh, and not a uh, a big change. Yeah, and Tuvinales is well defence. He did say that when they were trying it, conditions on track were pretty good. Yeah, and that is not those are not the conditions in which Yamaha needs to really work on it. Yeah, that's, it that's exactly the problem which Yamaha is. Um, Monday tests are the worst possible thing for them because on a Monday test, you've had the race, 
put lots of, uh, of uh, rubber down. Uh, then you've got 20-odd bikes running around, putting lots and lots of rubber for eight hours, putting lots and lots of rubber down. By the end of the day, there's so much rubber there that the, the grip is phenomenal. Everyone's doing fantastic lap times, but you're not learning anything. Um, I interviewed Paul Trevathan uh, back in Barcelona, and he was explaining that... Paul Spargaro's crew chief. Paul Spargaro's crew chief at KTM, and um, what he was explaining was they were... I mean, obviously, they have the luxury. They're a, they're, they're, they still have concessions, so they have free testing. They can test as much as they like, but they were um, they tested, for example, after Jerez, there was the, uh, the MotoGP test on the Monday, then there was a Moto2 test on a, uh, on a Tuesday, so the, the Moto2 boys took all of the rubber, all of the Michelin rubber off and put lots of uh, Dunlop rubber on, which makes the track very, very greasy again. Uh, and then there's just three KTM bikes circulating on the Wednesday, um, and they can replicate a that gives them a track with low grip, which is exactly what they which they want to learn. They did the same at Barcelona, and they've been able to make big steps because of that kind of uh, uh, testing program. Yamaha doesn't have that luxury; they're stuck on the on, on the high grip track, um, and there's not a lot you can do to replicate low grip except hope to be somewhere where there isn't very much grip yeah yeah Vinales was saying that the uh, Mizano test I think after Silverstone late August uh, which is usually held in punishingly yeah. uh, hot slippery conditions yeah, probably I, th a more I think it's uh, directly place. after yeah it's directly after Silverstone and so um, it's going to be really really hot there and uh, that's going to be really tough yeah, yeah. So maybe a better indication of how that 2020 M1 uh, will behave or its potential uh, will be delivered at Mizano uh, later this month. Okay, so Yamaha next up. Wow, goody gumdrops for those guys. Austria, <laughs> such such good memories for those yeah, guys. Yeah, exactly. There last they were, they, yes, they were. So they had such a fantastic weekend. Uh, they had such a fantastic. They were in the news a lot, certainly, um, uh, including um, a gentleman. Uh, who's no longer um, with the program. Yes, exactly. Project leader came out and made a uh, public apology that weekend. And well, it was just uh, an absolute disaster from start to finish. Uh, yeah, it, it, absolutely. But again, no Suji grip. San. Yeah, Tsuji San. Yes, Kuchi, Kuchi Suji. Um, uh, he came out. Um, uh, he has been replaced. Um, in fact, there are... One second. Yeah. I think Suji San is the one that's still. Oh no, not Suji. It's Suya. It's Suya. It Suya. is it's Suya. You are correct. Yes. One second. Sorry, lads. We'll just make sure this is right. Um, yeah, the weekend that was, uh, well, in some ways most memorable for Kuji Suya's public apology, the ex project leader. I guess that was uh, one occasion that was uh, that was his downfall. And it was the right was on the wall from there. And Yamaha, of course, have uh, Takahiro Sumi, now their new project leader for this year. Um, but really, I mean, can they expect to be anywhere near the fight for the front? Not, uh, not in Austria, no. I mean, uh, the, for a start, the, Austria is basically a series of straights with a uh, with a great big omega curve in the middle of it. Um, uh, it needs it's all stop and go. Uh, it's very, very hard braking, very, very high speed. Um, a very very hard acceleration. Um, there probably won't be much grip. It looks like it'll, it'll uh, be um, rain and then be very very hot and then rain and be very very hot. So they're going to have everything against them. I think it's just a uh, a weekend for them to grit their teeth, get through it, and uh, move on to Silverstone, which, having been resurfaced, should be much much better for them. Okay, yeah. So some tough times ahead potentially for Yamaha's contingent as we head to Austria. And, uh, well, 
we shall uh, we shall see how that goes. Not that brings us to the end of the second part of our discussion, and uh, we'll be back in a moment. Okay, welcome back. Now, Mark Marquez was not the only Marquez doing the business on Sunday afternoon. Prior to his demolition job at the MotoGP field, his brother did something quite similar, and this is becoming a fairly regular sight in Moto2 this year. I genuinely am quite dumbfounded that Alex Marquez is able to produce the kind of performances that he's been doing. Five wins in the last six races, and what I think is quite scary is that had Remy Gardner not taken him out the first corner at Jerez, had Lorenzo Baldessari not taken him out what, in the penultimate lap, Assen, you could be looking at seven straight wins from Alex Marquez. And in the championship, he would be completely out of sight because Thomas Lully crashed in the Moto2 race. And, uh, well, he has uh, now got a pretty healthy uh, championship advantage. Um, however, we're not going to discuss that, first of all, because there is some really, really juicy and interesting news coming out of the paddock on Sunday that Alex Marquez might not be staying with uh, Mark VDS in 2020. What's going on? Yeah, I mean, it's there were lots and lots of rumours which seemed quite um, strange, but it does look like Mark Mark, or sorry, Mark Alex Marquez uh, will be signing with the Patronus team for 2020 uh, for next year uh, to race in Moto2 with the option to go up to MotoGP. I think that is the key phrase, the option to go up to MotoGP. Um, there were rumours earlier this year that um, uh, linking Mar uh, Alex Marquez to Pramac uh, and also to Avintia, Emilio um, uh, Alzamora was really looking for a way to get uh, Alex into MotoGP. Uh, it was interesting. I spoke to um, uh, Bob Moore, at, um, who's uh, Brad Binder's manager, uh, at, at Bruno and asked him a little bit about you know what's going on with the with the way that the kind of rider contracts are, and he said that uh, the deal that he did with uh, with Brad Binder, uh, where he'll be going to um, the Tech Three uh, KTM MotoGP team for 2020, was entirely with the uh, with the idea in mind of 2021. 2021, everyone out of contract. Then there is there's this um, huge opportunity uh, riders might be leaving new riders might be coming in uh, all the factory seats will be open this this every, everything is open and so i think that's what this is about because it is odd that i mean obviously last year was a disaster for the mark vds team with michael barcelona um uh, being accused of um uh, of uh, financial malpractice in in, uh, in the team, and even though that got settled later on, um, it completely disrupted the team. Half the team left. There was a bad um, uh, there was a bad feeling in the team. That it really felt like they, it, it was split up, and I think that really affected everyone actually riding in the team. Motor two, motor, uh, motor three, motor GP. Um, this year, there's a much better sort of you know it's a much more cohesive unit the team is back to where it ought to be one of the best teams in the in the paddock and so that's helping obviously helping alex do uh, what he uh, what he's doing um but it does seem very strange to leave that absolutely rock solid organization um to go uh, to go somewhere else to go to another team uh, i mean i never thought i never expected alex to be this good and neil you know much more about motor 2 than me um what is where is this come from where is this how has alex marquez reinvented himself 
Um, I think there are there's several factors at play here. Um, first of all, one of those factors is one that you just mentioned. Um, there's a settled, harmonious atmosphere uh, within the team. Um, he is a new crew chief for this year, uh, who used to be Danny Pedroza's data technician. Um, his former crew chief has now taken a, a general overseer role of technical matters in that team, looking after both Marquez and Vierge. That's obviously something that's working quite well. Joan Leve, a Spaniard, has come in to manage the team, and apparently he's a very he's got a very can-do attitude. Anything that the technicians go to ask him about, he will come with an answer and help them work through things. There's maybe not the kind of, I don't want to say ego, but let's say previous years in Mark VDS, we would know one or two faces to talk to and they would say that there was always a pretty intense rivalry between both sides of the boxes in that garage, whether it was Marquez's side and Morbidelli's side. Um, well, half of that side is now gone, essentially. So, yeah, we've got a more harmonious atmosphere. I think the new Triumph bike Marquez has really quickly adapted really quickly to how it needs to be ridden. How it needs to be ridden. It's taken quite a few riders uh, quite a bit longer to adapt to the different characteristics of it. I think essentially the team, the technicians around him have told him that he needs to ride it more like a super bike or like a bigger bike to use less corner speed to pick it up earlier on corner exit and use the extra torque that's available to him. So he's managed to adapt his style quite well. Obviously, the new rear tire that Dunlop brought uh, at Hareth is another factor. Um, you look at his results in the first three races, they were slightly indifferent from a guy that was hoping to win the championship. But from Hareth, there's been a massive step forward. It's that thicker, um, sorry, not thicker, the, the bigger profile rear tire that Dunlop brought to Hareth was something that worked in his favor. And I was speaking to one of uh, Marquez's technicians uh, on Thursday last week, and he said the biggest thing is just his mental approach and um, the state of his, well, the state of his head. He said in previous years, he would obviously be training with his brother, an ex-world champion, he would come to races thinking, right, fired up, I can win this weekend. I know I can win, I have the talent to win, I've got the team around me to win. As soon as things started to go a little awry during a weekend, one session didn't go to plan, Things, the wheels would start coming off somewhat. And you saw it countless times in the past, Marquez panicking in the first couple of laps. If he got a lousy start or struggled at the start of a race, he would crash out because he would be thinking, I should be up in those podium positions. I can see those guys getting away and he would make an early mistake. What we're seeing now is a more tranquil uh, management of the situation. And he's just able to, well, accept that, okay, maybe uh, maybe third place might, uh, might be okay this weekend. But as it is, um, his speed and the package that he has is good enough for more than that. Um, but I think you saw that in Saxon Ring. He had a really shocking end to Friday. Saturday, um, he crashed out his bike, did a couple of barrel rolls through the gravel, went on fire. They had to do an overnight rebuild. And Saturday morning, he, I think he tried to exit pit lane twice. Uh, bike wasn't working. He essentially lost all of Saturday morning session and as a result was kicked out of the top 10. Sorry, the top 14 had to go in the Q1, but it didn't phase him. He went out, got pole position, and then won comfortably the next day. And that was at his worst track, apparently, what he considered his worst track. So all these factors coming together, I think, have really contributed to Marcus. I mean, he was always fast. You don't win. Um, you don't beat guys like Alex Rins, Romano Fanati, Jack Miller in a Moto3 World Championship without having a bag load of talent. 
And uh, I think it's just his, his preparation and his mental approach is a lot more settled now than it has been in the past. Yeah, I mean, I think maturity is uh, uh, an underrated factor in motorcycle racing, that kind of mental calmness. Uh, certainly you see it with... Um, uh, in fact, it reminds me a lot of um, uh, Mark Marcus when he won the 125 World Championship at that race at Estoril. I mean, he didn't win the championship there, but, you know, he f- f- fell off on the um, uh, on the sighting lap of the restarted, uh, uh, the restarted race, uh, came into the pits and sort of sat on his bike while they rebuilt the bike around him, um, got on it, went off and won the race. Um, that is that kind of... Other riders, and especially young riders, would panic in that situation. And some riders come to it naturally, others take a little while. You see it also, for example, Jack Miller, I think, is another good example. A rider who was too wild and wayward when he was younger. Um, and he's starting to focus, starting to get a little bit older, starting to understand a little bit, you know, the, that sort of long-term planning that we talked about. Um, but it, long-term goals is how you achieve, how you eventually win a world championship. Yeah, absolutely. And it will be fascinating to see. I think um, I've read some reports, heard some things that, I mean, the Sepang thing sounds as though it's a it's a goer. Yeah. Um, they're obviously fighting to get a second grid slot for their Moto2 team for 2020. Um, and, well, yeah, having Marquez there... Then going up to MotoGP, I mean, it seems as though the possibility of riding a Yamaha, what we know to be the friendliest MotoGP bike for a rookie, it seems that that has been that's been the clincher. And we know that it's a it's a pretty pretty solid team. Look at what Morbidelli and Quadraro have done this year, especially Quadraro. Um, you have to think that should you put a really good talent or a big talent in the midst of its Moto2 team, you would have sort of similar results. So. Um, the other thing is, of course, that the Sepang team right now are the only the only Moto Two team. Uh, well, no, well, there's, there's Grassini as well, but then you're in the factory Aprilia territory, and that's all very complicated. Uh, uh, Petronas is the uh, is the only team with a clear path from and KTM. Uh, yeah, and KTM. But there, there's lots of taken, obviously. Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly. And that's uh, and again, that is um, you know the, the, you're gambling on KTM better. You're gambling on on Aprilia getting better. With Petronas, they've got a nice clear path they've got a good good team in Moto3 they've got a uh, they've got good bikes in Moto2 uh, they've got competitive bikes in um, uh, in MotoGP um, uh, good surroundings um, it's an it's a nice clear uh, simple path straight to, uh, directly into MotoGP and that's where everyone wants to be in the end that's worth saying that I spoke to his manager Emilio Alsamora on Sunday evening he said the priority was to remain with Mark VDS um, but from what we've heard reports I mean, it definitely, like, there's no smoke without fire, and this does seem to be... What Emilio Alzamore seems to be saying probably means that the contracts haven't been haven't been signed yet. But everything we've heard from all sorts of sources is basically pointing to um, uh, there being open seats at the Mark VDS uh, team, and the only way that there's an open seat in Mark VDS team is if um, Alex Marquez... Uh, 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 go somewhere else. So, yeah, it's all it's all kicking off in Moto too. Part possibly as a result of the fact they're not being much to do in Moto GP. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Mark was asked about this yesterday at the test by a Catalan journalist. And uh, although my Catalan isn't great, I could more or less make out that Mark was saying that what he's doing is he's searching. Alex is searching for a route into Moto GP, and he'll choose the option that gives him the best possibility of that route and for me that was that was confirmation of it yeah, basically yeah yeah, yeah. Um, because mark vds have made this offer i think 
Joanna Levy did an interview over the summer break and he said, yeah, the offer's on the table. So uh, I'd been told on Thursday that uh, more or less it was agreed, not agreed, but they were sort of not the kind of mind, the smaller details, but clearly something, something happened over that weekend. Well, what happened over that weekend is that um, uh, they had the first meetings for the uh, 2020 grid in Moto2 because there's going to be big changes. Uh, they're going from 31 bikes on the grid, I think, 32. at the moment, 32 grids to, to, to 28. Uh, they're going to try and get rid of the one-bike teams, which means, unfortunately, we would lose Kiefer, um, Kiefer uh, Tasker, um, and there are teams who want to have two bikes. Patronus is one of those teams who both wants to have two bikes and can afford to have two bikes. Um, uh, Grassini also we could see two motor two bikes so there is a, resh a general reshuffling of the um, uh, of the grid and, and that I think has sort of shaken uh, a whole bunch of uh, a whole bunch of things up yeah absolutely and I guess uh, we're, everyone's going to be waiting to see exactly what happens with Marquez before some of the other pieces start falling into place but some really interesting uh, noises um, from all different types of riders essentially I mean uh, Aaron Kinnett Lorenzo Della Porta two of the riders fighting for the Moto3 championship they've said that they're basically in talks with Moto2 teams and they're going to be stepping up um, and with just Brad Binder moving up to MotoGP it means that uh, quite a few of the current Moto2 casts are going to be I don't know going across to Supersport uh, maybe the Superbike paddock or even looking yeah looking for rides elsewhere yeah yeah and I I it it feels like there. Uh, it feels like there's going to be a bit of a shakeout in Motor Two in 2020, and then a huge shakeout in Motor GP in 2021. Um, at some point, we shall have to uh, have a discussion once we get a bit of a better idea of what might happen in uh, in 2021. But I think we'll see riders retiring or or leaving or going off to do other things, and a whole bunch of people moving up from Motor Two to to Motor GP. So um, uh, that could be interesting. One other quick thing before we get to our winners and losers from the race weekend. What is going on at the VR46 Academy? We had news over the weekend, confirmation that not only Nicola Bulliga is leaving the Academy, Dennis Foggia, who we were expecting to leave, also Lorenzo Baldessari is uh, leaving the Academy at the end of 2019. What's happening there? Yeah, we asked um, uh, Pekka Banyai about that, and he said um, uh, the, the academy is still great. It's like Peter Pan's Island, he said. <laughs> it's just like a bunch of boys sitting around um, uh, playing uh, playing at motorbikes. Um, I, I don't know. My personal theory is that... Um, it's just the maturity of the projects. As you get, as the, as a project matures, riders come in, and they reach a point where they feel the project is not working for them anymore, and they move. We see some riders uh, involved who don't really want to follow the program. Uh, Dennis Foggia is one of those. I think he lives in Rome, and he doesn't want to uh, move to Pizarro with the with the rest of the academy. Um, uh, also, some it doesn't work for some riders. That kind of very uh, it's very regimented uh, approach. It's a very regimented um, um, way of life. Really, you get up, you train together, you have lessons in in all sorts of things: PR, English, all the rest of it. Uh, you go ride at very very specific at very specific times. It's very very structured. You have a dietitian. You're followed all the time. You're living uh, in a controlled environment. It's more like being in. It's more like being like in a boarding school than it is in um, uh, uh, than it is sort of living on your own. It's it's 
there are some kind of there are there is a certain kind of person and also there's also i think you reach a certain sort of stage in your maturity where you don't want to be sharing a house with some other bloke um uh, so i i think there's a little bit of that but it's hard to tell yeah yeah it is hard to tell i think yeah your point about writers reaching a certain stage in their lives this is just a natural time maybe for baldas harry to think yeah uh okay it's time to move on i caught up with him on saturday and he said that essentially his contract with the academy obviously the academy handles business negotiations um contracts negotiations with teams and potential sponsors, things like that. Uh, his deal with the Academy was coming up at the end of this year and the offer that he had on the table for them, sorry, from them, was for three years. And he said, well, well you know, I'm what, 23 now, I think, Baldessari yeah. is. That'll take me up to 26. He was not willing to undergo such a long-term three years in racing career is long-term, I guess. Yeah. A long-term commitment with that. And uh, yeah, he felt that the time was right. He also said that, uh, he said, it's like when you graduate from university and you go and do something else. Uh, so clearly he felt that, I mean, it's an academy after all. Yeah. It's the time to graduate and go your own way. I did get the distinct impression that while staying in Moto2 for 2020 with Pons is a perfectly acceptable option and will allow him to fight for the world championship again in 2020, uh, he is still slightly annoyed that MotoGP deal didn't come off for him because I think Balder's in yeah. no doubt whatsoever that he served his time in Moto2 and now he wants to go to MotoGP. He did say, uh, he said, yeah, Pons is a good option, but I mean, it's not quite MotoGP, is it? Yeah. <laughs> so that just told me pretty much everything that uh, he was a little bit, he was a little bit uh, frustrated. The fact that he's going to be working with Simone Battistella, Davizioso and Bautista's manager from the end of this year. Yeah, one of the best managers in the paddock. Yeah, very well respected. Great, great, great uh, links with uh, Ducati, uh, Honda as well. The, the other thing is that um, if you're part of the academy and you're managed by the academy, I mean, the academy is so many riders uh, that the uh, you're one of a number. Yeah, and so you're not necessarily going to get uh, the kind of a very specific, I mean, uh, when uh, when the ma when your manager is or when the VR forty six academy manager is off um, uh, negotiating with a team, um, they have too many op options to offer. Whereas um, if you're working with someone like Simone Battistella, who only has a few riders. Um, then he, he, you sort of get the feeling that these, he, he's more likely to find something specifically for you. So I think there's lots and lots of different things at play here. Um, Uchio Salucci, Rossi's best mate, and uh, I guess the manager of the VR46 Academy was speaking to Sky Italia on Saturday, and he actually said, you know, with so many riders, you can't actually offer an equal service to everyone. Yeah. Um, and another quote from Uccio that I found uh, there's an interesting feature on the VR46 industry or the the group um, Matt Oxley did in their performance bikes earlier this year um, in which Uccio was talking about the difficulties of negotiating the contract and he said that I'm not saying that Baldessari is solely motivated by money here but in that feature, um, Solucci did say that when he was negotiating with Pons, there were uh, more financially attractive offers available for Balda, um, and but they ended up going with what they felt was one of the one of the better teams in Moto Two. Um, yeah, you do feel that there's several factors at play here. Maybe Balda thinks that uh, I could be getting a, possibly a better deal somewhere else. Um, also. Yeah, who better to get me a great MotoGP ride than the man managing Andrea Dovizioso? Yeah. 
So, uh, yeah, I think um, those are some interesting factors at play. Okay, so um, winners and losers, Dave. There were, well, three winners at the weekend, but uh, several more if you dig a little deeper. Um, what struck you as, uh, or who struck you as a rider that walks away from Bruneau with uh, a real stride in his step? There are, I mean, I mean, apart from Mark Marquez, I think we have to just sort of, you know, exactly give give um, uh, um, give him the automatic uh, making the automatic winner winner of every round for the rest of the year season uh, but apart from that uh, um, I think I'm going to have to go with Jack Miller because Jack Miller had a uh, really really solid mature race uh, I think you came up with a stat on Sunday night which I shamelessly stole uh, that it was his first top five finish since 2014 in the second half of the season. Um, it's remarkable, so, really. Yeah, yeah, it really is. I mean, it, that's it's a very odd stat that one as well. It's it sort of tells you a lot about um, uh, about what's been going on with Jack Miller in the past. I think this establishes his uh, maturity. It establishes his uh, competitiveness. Um, it establishes, you know, he's a solid Ducati rider. Um, and also it was an extremely useful ride given that he is still negotiating money with, uh, with Pramac for 2020. Yeah, Miller, Miller still uh, yet to confirm his place with uh, Pramac, but um, while well, he said they're basically shaking hands, it's just a, not a matter of uh, the peanuts, as he said. I think that's a good choice, Dave, and that's as that was my choice. I yeah, was, fr frantically, the look on your face was <laughs> frantically scrolling through the result sheets from all three classes <laughs> to see. Uh, well, my other choice would have been Alex Marquez. Right. Okay. Yeah. Well, Marquez, I guess that's uh, that's another obvious winner. Uh, fantastic demolition job of the Moto Two field on Sunday, and uh, well, it seems that he might just have. Uh, an interesting new ride uh, in place for 2020 as well, um, which I'm sure would be uh, quite lucrative in several aspects, not least the fact that he might have a place on board a Yamaha in 2021 in MotoGP. 33 points, he now leads Thomas Lutibai in uh, in the Moto2 series. Okay, uh, loser. Big loser for the weekend. Well, as I stole your um, your uh, <laughs> your winner, you can go first, Neil. Yeah, um, I mean, I guess it's going to be a little bit of a, a broken record here, but I'm going to have to say Vinales just because it was uh, it was one of those frustrating days. Um, that was uh, yeah, a bit of a reversion to the norm that we saw at the start of the year, and yeah, a bit perplexed by it all. Um, made to feel like a bit of an idiot as well because I, I spent a lot of time over the summer break riding the high. He's back. Back to He's his back. best. Maverick is back! <laughs> and uh, yeah, he goes and gets a, a pretty lackluster 10th place um, at a track which uh, if you'd looked at free practice both in the wet and the dry yeah. you would have said he is nailed on for a podium. Didn't quite work out that way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I mean... I'll, on the other hand, um, uh, there is every chance that Maverick will just clear off. If it stays dry at Silverstone for for the weekend, there's every chance that it'll clear off there. And then there's plenty of other tracks where he might actually uh, might actually win as well. So yeah, I mean, it, it definitely the, the he was the he was a massive loser on Sunday. I think my big loser will be Andrea Dovizioso because not winning at Bruno. Uh, not being able to stay with Mark Marquez at Bruno basically is the nail in, his, in, in the coffin of his um, uh, title 
campaign for I mean it was it was over anyway. Yeah, but I mean, it was it was it was over anyway, but if he'd have been able to claw some points back here, then he would have gone to uh to Austria with the idea of okay, right, that's five fewer maybe five fewer Austria and just that you might have shifted the momentum of the championship a little bit. Um, instead, he comes away with the Mo, with the Marquez juggernaut just gaining steam and it's going to roll right over his uh, 2019 uh, championship campaign. Um, the other thing is, um, Andre Dovicioso has been second in the championship for the past two years. Um, looks like he's going to finish second in the championship again this year. Um, if the Honda is any good at all next year, second again, at a certain point, Ducati are going to start to think, you know, Andre, you've done really well for us, but you're not going to win us the championship, are you? And they're going to start to think about moving on from him. So I think, um, uh, this was a bad weekend for him also just because we're starting to move towards the point where we're negotiating for contracts for 2021 and he really needs to take the fight to Mark Marquez and he can't. Yeah. Yeah. Tough to look past that. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So, Davizioso, your loser uh, from this weekend. Okay. Well, that pretty much brings us to uh, the close of our discussion on the Czech Grand Prix. David checks the time and we haven't been withering away for just too long. 59 minutes, 59 minutes. Right, bang on an hour, not bad. Okay, perfect. Um, And I think uh, we'd just like to say that, uh, well, really sad news at the start of the Czech Grand Prix on Thursday. We found out that one of our colleagues and, uh, well, I guess uh, one of our friends as well, uh, Lucas Emprini, PR person for Ducati's MotoGP squad, a former journalist uh, before moving into uh, PR with Ducati, uh, passed away sadly on Wednesday night, Thursday morning. Um, really sad news, Look, who was just 35 years old, a young, healthy, uh, fit guy that took uh, his training pretty seriously. Also, uh, also, he was an interesting guy. I mean, he was the kind of person you could sit down and have a chore, uh, have a talk i mean we love motorbikes we love chatting about motorbikes but it's also nice to talk about things which aren't motorbikes and luca was a very very thoughtful person he was a good pr um he did everything he could to help you he was genuinely warm and kind uh it's just it's a it's a big loss he, yeah. was a, he was a good dude he was a really good guy yeah I remember uh, getting to know him whenever I was briefly working in World Superbikes in 2013-14 one of the first guys that uh, I guess we'd start and uh, attempted to start a bit of a um, working relationship there and uh, yeah really heartbreaking to hear sad news about Lucas so yeah thoughts for everyone at the Paddy Pass podcast with Lucas friends families and uh, colleagues at this time so um, yeah that's about it for this episode of the Paddock Pass podcast. Uh, I guess a timely reminder to uh, follow us on our social media channels, facebook.com forward slash Paddock Pass podcast, Twitter, 
at Paddock Pass Pod. And a reminder, a timely reminder, that we do have a Patreon page open and, uh, well, filled with uh, some added features through different race weekends. We are operating, of course, in two different race paddocks, World Superbike, Steve English and Gordon Ritchie, always bringing you the latest analysis and news from there. Yeah, just a quick reminder, on the, on, the, on the Patreon page right now, I have uh, uploaded the audio from Maverick Vinales and, uh, and Valentina Rossi about the uh, 2020 uh, Yamaha test so if you become a patreon uh, of ours there then you'll get to listen to exactly what they have to say and you'll be able to get to try and read read between the lines like we did exactly yeah become your own motor gp journalist for as little as three dollars a month that is what we're imploring you to do well less than uh, oh god Dave, the uh, the preview emails have already been coming in for austria yeah, yeah. i'm still trying to get through my work from last weekend but uh yeah we will be back this time i guess uh in a week in the future with uh, the next episode all the latest fallout from the austrian grand prix what promises to be another interesting weekend in the world of MotoGP. thanks very much listener for joining us for this show we'll see you soon okay so we're good to go really we are yeah Wicked. You realise you're endlessly typing in six 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 to your computer. <laughs> the podcast yes, of the beast. Just for the change. Just for a change. <laughs> yes. Automatically on the register of the FBI. Mm. But then that was the case anyway. I'd say. Pretty much. Right. Okay.